Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're tackling difficult fruit with author Kate Lebo. She introduces us to fruits that are hard to love and fussy to eat, just like the medlar. You're not supposed to eat it until after it has rotted a little bit. <laughs> There's a little bit of uh, fermentation and mold that I think that needs to happen to really get the full meddler experience. But first is my interview with Chef Anto Kokan. Her book, Saka Saka, is a tribute to Pan-African cuisine. Anto, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for the invitation. So you first learned to cook growing up in Gabon, mm -hmm. but then at 20 years old, you moved to France and you trained at the prestigious Ferrand de Paris as a chef. So my first question is, you know, how was that? Did you find the French approach to food similar to what you would learn back home? Or was it really a very different approach to both food and cooking? Oh, it was completely different. <laughs> In my culture, when we cook, we use a lot of spices, a lot of um, onions, garlic, and it's really important to marinate everything. We marinate everything, uh, fish, meat, seafood. And in France, when they season the food, it's only salt and pepper. So for me, it was <laughs> really different. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I remember mastering the art of French cooking. And I just went through it. I was like... There are no spices in here, you know. <laughs> At the time, it it didn't seem strange, but now I look back, and you're absolutely right. There's very few, very few spices. Yeah, in the beginning, I was surprised, but I understood that it was a different culture, and I need to know uh, why in this culture they cook like that. So, for example, before I came in France, for me, meat was always overcooked. It was just impossible for me to eat a meat with blood inside. <laughs> and it's in French that I learned uh, why you need to have the, a lamb rosé and not overcook, why you need to have a, a duck breast rosé and not uh, overcook. It's a new knowledge. And my project when I came as a student was to cook our um, gastronomy differently. It was to make a modern African cuisine. And I said, that, okay, if I can't do that in Gabon, I'm going to do that in France. You say in Gabon or Africa, I guess in general, there are almost no canned or frozen foods that mm -hmm. actually the diet is made up of less processed foods than in Europe. You're saying the foods are obviously more local and fresher? Yeah, um, because with my mother, every week we went to the market to buy uh, fresh vegetables, fresh meat, fresh fish. And for me, it's better to continue to cook with only fresh vegetables and only products of the season. Because in France, I discovered too that you can have products. It's not the season, but you can find it. Uh, and when you go in Africa, when it's not the season of avocado and you don't find it in the market, nobody is surprised because it's not the season. You need to wait the season. One of the things I really like a lot in your book is this idea of nocos, essentially sofrito, but you have different versions for yeah. different purposes, green, red, orange. Could you talk about that? Because I think it's such a helpful way of thinking about cooking to divide the sofrito into different uses. I think it's it's a really good teaching moment. Yeah. In the base of nocos, you have garlic, you have onions, you have pepper, sometimes ginger. And I, I gave in the book three different types of nocos. One, uh, you can use it with fish, one with, with meat, and the third with vegetables. And it's to teach to the young generations how to 
to cook like our grandmother because my grandmother used to use this paste of different ingredients to marinate, to season. And if you go in a lot of African restaurants, you're going to see sometimes a little paste, green paste on the fish or on the meat. It's the knockoffs. Uh, peanut crusted chicken. So if, if someone wanted to start off with this book, chicken's obviously something everyone understands. How do you make peanut crusted chicken? Is that something that is it a good place to start? Yeah, it's a good place to start. And it's really easy. It's really easy. I said only to people that you need to have meat with bones because in France, for example, they want to cook a peanut stew with the breast of chicken, but only breast don't, <laughs> doesn't have bones. And in Africa, if you want to cook in African way, you need to cook with bones. So we need meat <laughs> with bones and fish with bones. Right. So what about jollof rice? You know, it's obviously a very popular dish throughout many parts of Africa. Can you talk a little bit about its origins and what it's like? Jollof rice, you know, Senegal people say that jollof come from their country. Ghanaian people say that jollof came <laughs> there from their country. So it's there's a, a, a battle. But the problem is that people, when they think about African countries, they forgot that before these countries, we had kingdoms and empires. We had, for example, the, the kingdom of Diomer, we have the Mali empire, and the Mali empire is today eight different countries. In Gabon, we have a kind of jollof rice, and we call it red rice. And we, um, the best jollof rice, it's cooked on the wood because you have a, a blend of smoke and it's really a different taste when you cook jollof rice on the wood and when you cook it uh, like a classic kitchen. And it's really appreciated in Africa. Let, let's assume I know nothing about this. Um, and you want to teach me something about how you think about food, right? It's not just the recipe. It's like the approach to food and cooking is different than mm -hmm. what I grew up with. What would you teach me? What what recipe would you start with? What kinds of things would you say to me to get me out of my New England mindset about how to cook food? First of all, I'm going to teach you that cooking is really easy. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I don't know how to cook. It's really difficult. I'm really bad. And cooking is easy. And you need to be relaxed. And the easiest recipe is pepe soup in the book. Um, so you have uh, fried fish, you have some uh, seafood uh, and different texture because when you have fried fish, so the skin really is crispy and uh, seafood, you have the whole crustacean. Um, you have also the texture of these vegetables are really different too. Um, so this dish is for me um, the answer for your question. It's really Quick, easy, and in pepper soup, you can find it in every different African country. Anto, it's been a privilege. Uh, it's been fun. And uh, I, need, I need to take some courses from you because uh, <laughs> there's so much to learn. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Anto Kokan. Her book is Saka Saka, Adventures in African Cooking South of the Sahara. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of Home Cooking 101. Before we take a call, Sarah, I assume occasionally you look at TikTok or Instagram or whatever. A lot of it's silly, but do you find any of it sort of interesting in terms of cooking and food? Oh, no. I just love the dog videos. I have a thing about dachshunds. Wait, are they cooking them? I said food videos. No, I know you did, but I went right to dog videos. <laughs> no, actually, I haven't. Have you learned anything from a TikTok video about food? No, I do find, though, the thing I love the most, which you would do too, is Jacques Pepin during COVID did oh, a lot of Instagram stuff. He's still doing it. Here's the thing about watching him, I finally figured out, is he's not thinking about the recipe. He just does it. He's in the moment. He doesn't have to think about it. So watching him, he's so fluid 
and he's done it so many times before that you just go, this is a pro. I yeah. mean, when he bones out a chicken, which is my favorite. 29 seconds. Yeah, that's just like. Pops the joints and rips I just, it apart. I, I, he makes the lollipop thing and yeah. whatever. You know, yeah. he's amazing. I agree with you. He's very intuitive. He just knows what he's doing because he's done it so many times. And he's really enjoying himself. I also find it very soothing, very calming. I love to watch him. When you see somebody who's a pro. Yeah. And he spent his or her whole life doing something and watched them do it. It's just, it's magic. It is. Yeah. I agree 100%. It's like a hot bath with a nice cocktail. Oh, yes. Yeah. My second favorite thing in the world. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Boulder, Colorado. How can we help you today? Growing up, my favorite dinner that my mom used to make was a recipe that my mom's uncle said that he picked it up when he was in Australia during World War II. It has some, to me, unusual spices in it, and I've always been curious about what the origins of this spaghetti might be. It starts out with onions and peppers and ground beef and tomato paste. The spices in it are allspice, cinnamon, chili powder, nutmeg, and sugar. And I remember when I was a kid and friends would come over and my mom would make spaghetti, there was kind of this initial like, huh, this doesn't taste like the spaghetti that I know. But everyone has come to love it. And, yeah, I've just always been intrigued by that spice combination that I haven't seen in other recipes. Well, you know, except for the chili powder, everything else in there with the ground beef is reminding me of some Greek dishes like moussaka or pastizio Mm -hmm. because they have those sweet spices in there, too. In my mind, it must be a Greek recipe. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, we were cooking with Diane Kochilis, who's written a lot of books about Greek cooking. And she makes a tomato sauce with cinnamon, which is typical. And throughout the Middle East, in a lot of other places, you see a combination of what we consider to be sweet baking spices with cumin and mm-hmm. other more savory spices. So I agree, it probably is Greek in origin, but this is very common. And I think it's great. Yeah, it is. I love it. I I hope my mom makes it every time that I go home. Well, here's the thing. Don't just let your mom make it for you. Get the recipe so that you have it. I have the recipe, but you know, when your mom makes you something, it tastes even better than when you make it yourself. A, I agree with you, and B, I also feel like if anybody else cooks for me, it tastes better than what I make myself. No, no, I'm sorry. But especially mom. No, no. I cook much better than my mother did. Well, my mother was a great cook, so... I absolutely hear you, Rebecca. When you're in Boulder, Colorado, then come over and I will make this spaghetti for you. Okay. That's a deal. I like that offer. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Rebecca, what a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was a thrill. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your toughest kitchen mysteries. Give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Esther Rogers calling. And how can we help you? I have never been able to get an omelet right. I love making them. I love putting lots and lots of things in them. And it ends up being a scramble because it never (laughs) flips for me. And, you know... I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. Just take us through what you do. I usually always use butter Mm -hmm. in my pan. I uh, usually use three eggs, and then I will season with salt and pepper. Mm -hmm. And then I put the eggs in the pan, but I wait until it's like warmed up where I can see that the butter has melted and it's hot, and I put the eggs in. I'll take and move the eggs as I cook. And then probably about... Halfway through that process, so I've still got quite a bit of uncooked egg. I start putting in things like, you know, my ham and my onions and peppers and whatever I'm going to be putting in there. And ultimately, when I go to fold it, it breaks. 
Here's what I would do. First of all, I would heat the pan more and I would use oil. You can use butter, but oil's easier and more foolproof. It also tends to convey heat more readily to the eggs because there's no water in it. So the oil's going to get up to a higher temperature faster than the butter because the butter's about 19% water. Make sure you have plenty of oil. I assume it's a nonstick skillet or a well-seasoned carbon steel skillet. Get it to the point where the oil's a little wavy and it's almost ready to smoke because you want to get a fair amount of heat in that pan so you're going to set the eggs fairly quickly. Put them in the pan and then use either a spatula or a fork and, you know, I do it counterclockwise, but just sort of essentially scramble the eggs, move them around in the pan for seven or eight seconds. Let it cook for a little bit, but you move the edges of the omelet into the center, tilting the pan, allowing the uncooked eggs in the center to get down into the pan and set. That way you end up getting that layer of eggs set before you put the filling on. Then don't add too much in the center, fold it over like a letter, and then use the spatula and gently ease it out onto a plate without doing any flipping or fancy pan work. And now Sarah will tell you everything I just said was wrong, but go ahead. No, no, I agree with a lot of what you said. Oil, the high temperature, the pan should be hot for an omelet. And I always add a couple of teaspoons of water, about one teaspoon per egg. So uh, that helps to fluff it up, makes it lighter. Uh, also, salt is really key. Pepper sure is fine. At any rate, then you add the egg when the pan is hot. And then you move very quickly, and you tip the pan around and around and around to make sure the egg gets around. And then make sure when you add your vegetables, are they raw or cooked? Usually they're raw. No, they should be cooked. Because think okay. about it, raw vegetables are sharp. You know what I mean? You said one of your problems is your omelet falls apart. So you need to have sauteed mm -hmm. your vegetables till they're softened, and they should be chopped up a little bit anyway. Season them with salt and pepper, have them ready to go, have your cheese grated in smaller pieces if you're going to add that. And then when the omelet is almost done, put all your cooked filling on one side of it, and don't overdo it. And then gently fold over one side over the other. And then if there's cheese in there, what I'll sometimes do is take it off the burner and put a lid on for a minute so that the cheese melts. Okay. Hopefully that's helpful. Let us know how yeah. this all goes, Thanks. and I'm rooting for you. I surely will. Thank A pleasure you. talking to Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Okay. You as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we learn about fruits that are fussy, rare, and very hard to love. That's right after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Kate Lebo, author of The Book of Difficult Fruit. It features 26 essays about fruits that are hard to find, harvest, prepare, or just plain hard to love. Kate, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me. First off, I absolutely loved your book. Thank you. The writing's amazing, and it was surprising because it really is a very different book than I thought. It's about fruit, but you also talk about how your mother had a history of migraines, how you suffer from some chronic illness yourself, which sounds actually like it informs your relationship to both food as well as difficulty, right? Yes. 
You know, I think that um, I, I feel like my relationship to food is, is bifurcated. On, on one hand, I just love making things. And, and, you know, where some people might want to climb a mountain to get a good view, I would like to do the same repetitive task with a raw material of food to achieve a, a flavor. So there's that's one end of how I, I think about food. But then on the other, my mother really taught me to think about food as medicine. Um, she has had chronic illness my entire life and most of her entire life. And um, the mysteries of chronic illness and the frustrations of it, the way that you go to the doctor and they can't really tell you what's right. wrong with you. They can't really tell you exactly what to do, but to try this, try this, try this, right. um, really led her to trying to um, get better through diet, through healthy diets, through um, different kind of medicinal fad diets. And it was never about losing weight. It was about trying to feel better and trying to be pain free. Yeah, I want to follow up on that because my mother-in-law had was ill for a number of years and tried everything. Uh, my wife is, you know, loves trying food as as medicine and goes through different, I won't say fads, but different programs. Right. And, and you never get to the point where you have a solution, right? You have hints or hopes of things that get better for a while and then they don't get better. Is that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I think through observing my mother and through having my own issues, trying to find a food solution for myself and failing, but then also through writing this book, I really started to understand that a solution is never what food and diet offers, or at least it wasn't going to offer me and and my loved ones, Um, but a practice around eating that evolves because of the attention that I'm paying to it, that is healing. And that can promote well-being. You know, maybe it doesn't cure me of my illness, um, but it gives me a bit of control. It helps me kind of stay connected to my body, to what I eat. So it's just this delicate balance that feels typified in this relationship, as I understand it, between medicine and poison and that often it's the same source it's the same material it's just a different size of the dose so this book is about 26 difficult fruits what's a difficult fruit gosh there's so many different ways to come at difficulty and of course um, each fruit i chose was an opportunity to come at it in a different way but originally the way i was thinking about it was fruit that does not behave in such a manner that it would you would be able to put it through a traditional food system and have it pop out at the grocery store so not the banana which i think about as like the snickers bar of the grocery store where you pick it up you unwrap it you can stick it in your right. face it's sweet it's easy Stuff like quince, right, that um, used to be very popular, you know, hundreds of years ago, but has fallen so far out of favor because it is so astringent and so sour and needs such a long time cooking that the ways that most of us cook in you know, today doesn't allow for that kind of taste. And, and because it doesn't allow for that kind of taste, many of us don't even know that quince exists. You talk about the medlar which is a fruit that's referred to as dog's bottom for its fetid odor. Uh, You write, quote, unexpected, raunchy, sweet, and rotten. That's the right virtue of the medlar. Yeah. So you want to explain what a medlar is? Absolutely. So it's a a beautiful tree, first of all. Really beautiful um, cream blossoms. And its fruit looks like an oversized rose hip, and you're not supposed to eat it until after it has rotted a little bit, and that's a process <laughs> called bledding. Where, where does that where does that term? I saw the term bledding. I never heard that before. Is that an old fashioned horticultural term? Or it must a... be. You know, I didn't look it up. I just started using oh. it as if I knew what it was. True uh, writer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was such a great word, and and you could say my obsession with meddler really came from that word and that. I could apply this new idea. You would eat something that's rotten, that bledded. Um, And I've eaten them when they've been bledded outdoors on the tree, and I've eaten them when I've bledded them in my basement. And the one outdoors on the tree is preferable. Um, it, there, there's a little bit of, uh, fermentation and mold that I think that needs to happen to really get the full meddler experience. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's delicious, Part of me wants to say I just don't have a taste for it, but the other part of me wants to say it's just not very good. There's um, an ingredient used in baking in the Mm -hmm. Middle East that's made from, I think, cherry pits and other things. 
but it, it has sort of an almond flavor. Are you talking about malab? Yes, yes, malab. And so what is it that gives the inside of cherry pits an almond flavor? So all cherry pits, all stone fruits, have an almond flavor to them. Um, I think it's benzaldehyde is what that's called. And it's non-toxic and delicious. Um, They also contain um, amygdalin, which, when it combines with the moisture in your body, becomes cyanide. So not so good good news. That's good. Fun, right? So you have to be careful. And it's not the pit. It's the kernel you have to worry about. But if you crack it open, get that kernel out, that's where you have to be careful. And I've tasted cherry kernels. I've tasted apricot kernels just, you know, one at a time to try it. And it's this really delicious almond, very bitter flavor. Um, Huckleberries, huckleberry pie, which you see in literature and old books, they're still... People still make huckleberry pie, and, and what are huckleberries like versus, let's say, blueberries? Sure. Well, you know, it changes according to what coast you're on and what historical era we're talking about. So when I was doing my research, I looked at the Cyclopedia of Hardy Fruits. That's, um, let's see, it's Hedrick is the last name. Um, And it came out of the Cornell Extension in like 1906 or something. And at that time, the huckleberries that Hedrick was describing were what you would call wild blueberries now. So people still make huckleberry pie. They just call it wild blueberry pie on the Hmm. East Coast. On the West Coast, our huckleberries are a vaccinium. On the East Coast, it's Galicatia. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but close enough. Um, Are, are, Are they smaller than blueberries and not as sweet? It depends. So if we're talking about my huckleberries, the huckleberries of the Pacific Northwest, the ones that are west of the Cascades are smaller than blueberries. They're not as sweet. They're very, very intense. I think they make just an absolutely divine pie, but they can be a little challenging to eat straight. Um, The huckleberries that grow on the east side of the Cascades, where it's a lot drier, um, those are fatter. Those are closer Mm. to the size of blueberries and have a milder flavor. Yuzu is one of my, in the last few years, my favorite fruit. Mm-hmm. Yuzu marmalade. You want to talk about yuzu because I think it's it's headed for, if it's not already there, sort of culinary stardom. Yeah. Is it, has it not reached its culinary stardom I think, yet? I think it may. It's it's close. Yeah. Where's where's Yuzu's publicist to tell us we need to eat it? But no, yuzu is, it's so, it smells so great. And it's such an interesting citrus fruit, I think, because, I mean, again, the way that I'm used to encountering citrus fruit comes from the grocery store. So I think of the peel as just this case that I have to struggle to get off of the thing I actually want, which is the fruit in the middle. And with yuzu, usually the fruit is, it's just not, there's not much of it there. It's kind of desiccated. It's not delicious. That's not the point. The point is the rind, the zest, and all layers of citrus contribute something to marmalade making. And I love that. So the zest on the outside, I believe that's called the epicarp. You, you know, peel that off and you'll get a delicious flavor if you can, you know, dilute it enough with juice and with sugar. And the pith, of course, is really important for thickening a marmalade. There's so much natural pectin in that pith. Hmm. Uh, When I was in Tokyo four or five years ago, I, I noticed they treat fruit in a very different way than we do, right? They, they were into the $30 pint of strawberries with that tasted just unbelievably perfumed. And you could buy a melon for $150. They prize their food in a different way. When you did this book, did you come away with a similar feeling or something much more complex? You know, I certainly came away with a feeling of prizing fruit. I mean, I, I, but I also prized fruit to begin with, to want to spend seven years of my life hanging out with it to do this book. I would have to, right? And of course, this book comes out of years of failure, as did any, my understanding of a lot of these, these fruits. Um, I failed a lot with them. I failed to find them. I failed to understand them. I failed to cook well with them. And each of those failures led to further attempts. And each of those failures also taught me something about those fruits. You learn to love difficult things. Does that translate into people? Or does that translate into any other part of your life? Yeah, I mean, I think, and you love things for their difficulty, but... 
their difficulty is, is inextricable from, from what they are. And I guess I'm talking about plants and people here. I mean, I really, I really grew a much closer relationship to the natural world through food and through studying all of these fruits. And I think the same can go for really trying to understand all of our individual difficulties as people and the ways that we, that we fail each other and how to not just, for, not just forgive, but try to, I don't know, understand the roots of those failures because um, they're probably tangled with our own. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you walk into a supermarket and you want the perfect apple or the perfect grapefruit or whatever. And I always think about heirloom apples as really a good metaphor for what's wrong with food today, right? We want the one perfect thing, mm-hmm. but we're not willing to put up with any trouble or difficulty or work right. to get there. And right? as a result, our tastes go extinct right. along with fruits. Right. I love the rebellion within the seed of an apple. The way that if you plant just an apple core, that tree will not grow true right. to its parent. Right. I love that. Yeah. You're going <laughs> you're gonna to get something else, and that's that, Yeah, I've always that's liked That's true that. humans yeah. also. And it's the imperfect ones that are always worth the yeah. trouble, right? I agree. On that extremely metaphoric <laughs> note, <laughs> I'd just like to thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I look forward to your next work. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's such a pleasure. That was Kate Lebo. Her book is The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes. Kate Lebo describes the fruit medlar as raunchy, sweet, and rotten. It's the epitome of a difficult fruit, along with huckleberries, yuzu, and durian. Now, all of this may point to an inconvenient truth. The most difficult things in life are often the most rewarding. Some foods are poisonous, but in small dosages, they're powerful medicine. Some kitchen ingredients, think cassava, have to be fermented for days before preparing fufu, a staple of West African cuisine. And some relationships are challenging, but in the long run, most rewarding. So for a rich life, always take the most difficult path. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Hungarian chicken paprikash. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You just got back from Budapest, and I was there many years ago. George Lang, who had Café des Artistes on the Upper West Side of New York, went back to Hungary, where he was born, and he took over Gundel, the famous restaurant. And I was there right at the heyday of that. He had just finished buying it and refurbishing it, and I sat down, and they had a frenzy of waiters. (laughs) They had a band, the whole thing, you know. It was very 1930s. And uh, I ordered chicken paprikash, and it came with a huge silver dome. You know, the waiters stand around, they take the domes off. It was phenomenal. I mean, it's just completely revelatory. So you went much more recently, and you actually did some homework about how to make chicken paprikash. I did. And I'm going to tell you, Gundels, if it was trapped in the 30s when you went, it was trapped in the 80s when I went. Imagine people dressed as elephants <laughs> walking what? around to entertain you at the table. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, well, you know. That's very sad. <laughs> but the paprikash was phenomenal, <laughs> I will tell you. And Gundel's actually has an amazing history with this recipe, and they were wonderful enough, despite the elephant people, to educate me about this. As we know, paprika really is the backbone of Hungarian cuisine. It is used in literally everything. It really shocked me. I mean, they put it in cocktails, in breads, obviously in soups and stews like paprikash and goulash. Kids put it on rice pudding and cakes. That is Hmm. how important paprika is. But it wasn't always the case, actually. The Turks introduced it to Hungary about 400 years ago. And before that, uh, seasonings focused mostly on saffron and ginger. So the origins of chicken paprikash actually go back to a dish that was just a simple chicken stew, frankly, chicken and onions. And eventually, after paprika was introduced to Hungary, it was added to this stew. And a little bit after that, tomato was added. And it created a dish now known as porkolt, which is basically a paprika, chicken, and onion, and tomato stew. Sounds a lot like chicken paprikash, doesn't it? (laughs) But it's not. It's a distinct dish that's still eaten today. 
It wasn't until actually the 1920s that chicken paprikash came to be, and we're headed back to Gundel for this. So at the time, French cuisine had a tremendous influence over the cooking of Hungary, and chefs wanted to replicate that style of cooking. And one thing they particularly wanted was kind of the heavy cream-based French sauces. Well, heavy cream is less common in Hungary, but sour cream is quite common. And so, as the story goes, a chef at Gundel added sour cream to chicken porkolt, and chicken paprikash was born. Give me some sense when you had it. Just describe the dish. Eating the dish is quite different than what most of us are used to. Yeah, this isn't the dish we ate in the 1960s. Well, I guess I wasn't born, so I didn't eat it in the 60s. But it's not the dish that Americans do from the 1960s. First of all, you have a base of onions that have been cooked down until they're barely caramelized, but plenty sweet. And then you add some richness of some fat. They do love their duck fat. And tons of paprika, but not just one type of paprika. And by the way, in Hungary, paprika can mean anything that has anything to do with any type of pepper. So it's very confusing. But in this dish, they add sweet paprika, hot paprika, fresh paprika, which we would call fresh peppers, and a tangy paste made from pureed chili flakes and peppers and some citrus. And the result is just these bright, bright, savory, rich notes from all that paprika. I mean, we're talking adding it a quarter cup at a time. Okay, that's the sort of paprika we're talking about here. And what's interesting is that in Hungarian cooking, paprika isn't just a flavor. It is also a thickener, and of course it colors it, but it defines the dish, really. And so, chicken paprikash, it's savory, it's sweet, it's a little smoky, it's bright, but it's also rich, and it's very balanced. And of course, it gets a finish with that sour cream, that all-important sour cream, which is what defines it as chicken paprikash. You add that in, and it balances out all those other rich flavors, all those other kind of high notes from the paprika, and then you get your savory, tender chicken. It was really phenomenal. You liked it. (laughs) I'm just checking. (laughs) You know, the best part is it's always served with these simple egg dumplings, which is water, flour, egg, and salt. Uh, They're called nokedli. And they're really free-form dumplings. I mean, it's the easiest dumpling you will ever make. You literally just ladle the batter onto a wooden cutting board, and you just scoop it off by a spoon into boiling water, and it cooks up. Mm. It's so easy and delicious, so tender and chewy. It's like kind of the perfect neutral foil for this rich, rich sauce of the paprikash. And then they also pair it with a cucumber sour cream salad, which is bright and cool and creamy. Again, the perfect complement to the rich paprikash. JM, thank you. And authentic, I think it's fair to say, Hungarian chicken paprikash. I had it before you were born. (laughs) You had it in the last year, but I think we both loved it. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. You can find this recipe for Hungarian chicken paprikash at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we get a lesson in the language of bread. That's in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, hi. My name is Josh Curtis. How can we help you today? So um, I've got a question, actually, about some uh, lentils and quinoa. Um, and I've been cooking it in the rice cooker to pretty good effect. The difficulty that I'm having is in figuring out how to season it and when. Because, you know, if I add the seasoning to the water, it just comes out extremely bland. But if I uh, try to season it directly, it feels like it almost overpowers it a little bit. If you're dealing with red or yellow lentils, the first step would be to cook the lentils. And then you can, if you want, season them. One way to do that that's really effective besides salting them is taking some oil, quarter mm-hmm. cup of oil, and you can put a teaspoon or so of a spice, like Aleppo pepper is great or some other things. Cook it for two or three minutes until the oil turns the color of the spice and drizzle that over the cooked lentils. And that's a really great way to flavor something that's relatively bland. Chris, tell them what that's called. It's called a tarka, T-A-R-K-A. It takes 20 minutes to make a red lentil soup, and you just drizzle on that very spiced oil on top, and that would be my go-to method for seasoning. And now, 
we'll hear from the headmistress. <laughs> the Sarah. <laughs> no, um, I think tark is a great idea. But what I was going to say is in terms of seasoning, you want to add salt at the beginning. Yeah. Either quinoa or lentils. And they take roughly the same amount of time. They cook quickly, which is like 20 minutes or so. If you're going to add any kind of acid to them, you do it at the end after they're cooked as a flavoring, because mm-hmm. that'll get in the way of them getting tender. Salt, absolutely in the beginning, and then other seasonings at the end. I think you can experiment, and I, I would try to get some books that have a lot of recipes for this. And particularly Indian cookbooks. You're going to get a lot of great ideas, great spices right. to put on top. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I will, I will look into that. Thank you very much. Thanks okay. for calling. Thanks, Josh. Absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mel Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, call us, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chris from Madison, Wisconsin. How can we help you? I have a very popular recipe for apricot brandy bread. People who've had it always requested, and in fact, a couple of Weeks ago, someone who loves it asked for it to be their birthday cake. So I baked this bread recipe in an 8 by 8 inch pan and decorated it like a cake, but it remained a bread. And I'm hoping you might have some advice for converting a quick bread recipe into a cake recipe. What's in the recipe, just generally, the ingredients? It's basically butter, sugar, eggs applesauce, apple brandy, flour, baking powder and soda, dried apricots, and pecans. How much applesauce? It's uh, 16 ounces of applesauce. So you're looking for a lighter cake version of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there's some formula for converting a quick bread recipe into a something more like a cake. I would just start with the cake recipe. I wouldn't try to convert this because this is applesauce cake, which is always going to be on the heavy, moist side. Right. What I would do is take a basic yellow cake or white cake. I would add apricots, and then I would make a sugar syrup with apricot brandy. Oh. You could do a layer like an upside-down cake. Sarah? I like that. I like that. You started this whole saga by saying that everybody really likes this cake, and they actually asked for this cake for their birthday. So why would you want to mess with success (laughs) if they all loved it? And if you wanted to dress it up, something we used to do when I worked at Gourmet Magazine is, you know, something that was rustic to make it seem fancy. We would take a doily and then sprinkle confectioner's sugar on top. (laughs) And if you wanted it to be uh, more lasting, you could use There's this thing called non-melting topping sugar that doesn't melt. You put the doily on, you put this non-melting topping sugar, you lift off the doily. Fancy! Does anyone under 50 know what a doily is now? Be nice. No, well, I know, but I just think that... (laughs) They still use them in diners under cakes, you know. Oh, I suppose that's true. But but I think she wanted a lighter texture, though, right? Well, no, she did, but nobody else did. What I'm saying is, you know, the thing is, if you make it seem like, oh, my God, this is the best cake ever, and I'm just going to dress it up a tiny bit for your birthday, and this person loved this cake anyway, you win. There you go. All right. I, I like both of those. I'm not saying anything. (laughs) I refuse to comment. Chris Chris is behaving over there in that corner. No, I I just think you could do both. (laughs) Yeah, do both. I mean, you know, listen to Sarah, get a doily and and the (laughs) non-melting sugar or get a real cake recipe and adapt it. I have to confess that I have paper doilies on hand for this specific purpose. There you go. Okay, Chris. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) But I'm going to do both. All right. Thanks for calling. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Bye, Chris. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Matt from Roseville, California, and here's my tip. Next time you make a chicken dish, like a soup, casserole, or especially tacos or enchiladas, instead of discarding the skin before breaking down the chicken, put that skin back into the oven and cook until very crisp. Then, with your chef's knife, break it down into nice little chicken crumblies, little crunchy pieces, and then use that to top your casseroles, tacos, or enchiladas, or add to soup right before serving. It is also great on salads. You can also spice the chicken skin with additional spices and flavors to up the flavor profile of any dish. 
Try this next time you make anything chicken-based, and you'll find that it's a great addition and really ups the game. Thank you. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Right now, it's time to chat with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, what's going on? Hi, Chris. We're thinking about bread. Yes, we're thinking about the fact that bread is so fundamental in so many different cultures. And in fact, there are some very old words for bread that show up in some surprising places in our language. For example, Chris, if you invite company over for dinner, you're inviting them to break bread with you, right? Right. That's true. But you're doing that in more than one way because the word company itself goes all the way back to the Latin word for bread, panis, P-A-N-I-S. And so a companion, for example, is somebody you share Hmm. meals with. And a pantry was originally the place where you kept the bread that comes to... That's a good one. I like that. (laughs) And, of course, you know, a related word to all of those words is the Italian plural panini. Yeah, the strange thing about panini, and and maybe you know this already, but we borrowed it kind of incorrectly. It's singular in English, panini, but we borrowed the plural form, and it means more than one panino, a little bread roll. Uh, The French did the same thing, so we're not alone. They also borrowed the plural to mean a singular. And the longer form in Italian is panino imbottito, which literally means stuffed bread, but a better translation would be sandwiches. Well, the French don't care about trashing the Italian food or their language, (laughs) so it's okay. we all benefit when they argue over food because we get to eat at both tables, right? (laughs) The French and the Italian tables, and and they're both delightful. (laughs) Well, surprisingly enough, here's another familiar English word that actually contains an image of bread in it, and that word is lady. What? Yes. Yeah, this is a strange one. Yeah, it comes from the Old English word chlefdiga, which means bread kneader. It's the person who works huh. the dough with her hands. And the chlef in there is actually cognate with the English word loaf. You know, it's the person who kneads the loaf of bread. And get this, the word lord, not just lady, but lord also contains that same root hmm. because the lord used to be the chlafward or the chlafward, which is the person who guards the loaves. So the lady needs the loaves and then the guy guards the loaves. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. I, you know, in a, in a post-feminist world, I'm not sure how well that goes down, but okay, that's good. Right. I like it. Yeah. yeah, it's the old model. Yeah. And from Hebrew, we also get a really cool bread word. The Hebrew word bait means house, and the word lechem in Hebrew means bread. And so that combination, bait lechem, turns into, hmm. in Hebrew, Bethlehem. It's the house really? of bread, literally. Yes. Was that right next to the house of pancakes? <laughs> Next door. I love that you are rising to the occasion, Chris. <laughs> Good, I like that. <laughs> but wait, there's more because in medieval London, the Hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem was converted into an institution that housed people who were severely mentally ill. And of course, as you can imagine, in that time, this was an incredibly grim place. And over time, this word Bethlehem, the name of this institution, became Bethlehem. And then eventually the word... Oh, Bedlam. You see where I'm going? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So there's a little tiny crumb of bread in that word Bedlam. I'd heard the, the origin of the word Bedlam, but I didn't know it was bread. That was yeah. Bethlehem. That's interesting. Yeah. So you can always yeah. take it back a little further. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Great cocktail party detail. Now, do you have any people with the last name of Baxter in your life, Chris? Uh, no. Maybe you have some bakers in your life, Mr. and Mrs. Baker, perhaps. I think I do, yes. Well, Baker is obviously from a family that perhaps had bakers in right. their history, but Baxter also comes from people who used to bake. The Bakester... B-A-K-E-S-T-E-R was the older spelling, and you could Mm. find it among the English and the Welsh. Uh, Seven centuries back, you would find people being called a Baxter, and it meant uh, a baker. All I know is Welsh is the most mysterious, impossible-to-understand language. Oh, Um, but it's a lovely one to hear. It is. Yeah, it's kind of the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? Oh, there's a segue, Martha. Okay, here's one last thing for you. There are a couple of word historians that we've got to tip our hats to here, and they are Barry Popick and Peter Jensen Brown. They've done some fantastic work looking into the history 
of the saying, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Hmm. And the short version of this is it came out of bread marketing. When sliced bread was a new thing that you could buy in the store, marketers hyped it. So from the late 1920s forward, they were constantly promoting the glories of pre-sliced bread. They had slogans like greatest forward step in the baking industry since wrapped bread. Apparently wrapped bread was a big deal. (laughs) And the greatest time saver since ground coffee and sliced bacon. (laughs) But for a long time, the saying only existed in the, the bread baking world. And then by the 1950s, it entered everyday American English uh, outside of breadland. One weird thing is that prior to the sliced bread saying catching on, you would find other comparisons. For example, in 1895, a folding bicycle was said to be, quote, the best thing since the jointed fishing rod. <laughs> <laughs> That's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> that really worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> that one did not catch on. <laughs> well, Grandma Martha, thank you so much. You're clearly the best thing since sliced bread. Thank you. And you're great company, Chris. And we were all on a roll. <laughs> that was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download our recipes, check out our membership options, watch our TV shows, or learn about our latest cookbook, which is Cook What You Have, Make a Meal Out of Almost Anything. You can find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.